and I, along with the other health officials on the coronavirus task force and all the people on the task force, but I, I want you to, to hear it from me. I hope I can earn your trust. Regarding coronavirus, people across the country and across the planet have been infected. And last week, the WHO declared the situation a pandemic. Initially, when most of the infections were coming from China, we engaged in what we call containment efforts to keep the disease out of our country and out of our communities. And most experts actually feel that worked to slow spread. But the issue is Italy became the new China, and then Italy and the rest of Europe seeded most of the rest of the United States. We now have 49 states plus the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico that are reporting cases. So we're shifting to what we call mitigation. Mitigation means limiting the impact within our communities by social distancing and also protecting the most vulnerable. And I have a tweet out on SurgeonGeneral.gov listing CDC's new guidelines for social distancing. Over 3,000 Americans have been diagnosed and uh, over 50 have died. And the next few weeks are going to be critical to determine if we can limit infections and decrease deaths like South Korea have actually done, or if we go the way of Italy, which has seen skyrocketing infections and deaths. Uh, I want you all to know our numbers on Friday were the same as Italy's were two weeks ago. So we are at a crucial inflection point in our fight. That's why last week the president announced travel restrictions for most of Europe and declared a state of emergency on Friday, freeing up almost $50 billion in funding for states and localities. A bill moving through Congress, as Senator Harris mentioned, would also allow free testing, paid sick leave, increased access to unemployment benefits, and food assistance. And I want you all to know these are all initiatives that I've supported on the task force as someone who knows how important these things are to people who are struggling. It's not as simple as saying stay home from work or, uh, or letting the kids out of school. You've got to think about the, the secondary and tertiary effects. We made an announcement earlier today about increasing availability of testing, and I, I'm going to be uh, straight with you all. Testing has not gone as we would have liked it to have gone so far. But we are at a turning point, and in the next week, you'll see significantly greater testing at the hospital, state, and federal levels. I don't have time to go over all the details, but I would encourage you to look at the uh, at the at the, um, uh, the press conference we did earlier today uh, for more details. And again, I can take a few questions on that if you'd like. We will be prioritizing testing for healthcare workers. We need to take care of the people who take care of the people, and for those who are most vulnerable. And we define that as people over 65 with underlying medical conditions. But it's important for people to know that even in South Korea, where they had a severe outbreak and they tested large numbers of people, 96% of symptomatic people, people with fever, cough, shortness of breath, 96% of them tested negative for COVID-19. And over 99% of those did test positive, recovered. Their death rate was about 0.7. In other words, if you are sick with fever, cough, and shortness of breath, it is probably not COVID-19. And even if it is, if you're in a low-risk group, you will likely only have a mild illness uh, and completely recover. Now, that doesn't mean we should all shouldn't take precautions and practice social distancing. And it doesn't mean that even if you test negative for coronavirus, that you should be taking your coughing and feverish self into public. And I'm getting questions all the time from people saying, should I take that $70, $70 round-trip flight to Fort Lauderdale? Uh, the fact is, even if you were at low risk, you don't want to be the one who gives it to your granddaddy or your nana. Now I want to finish by telling you about my Surgeon General's prescription for Americans. It involves three things. Number one, you need to start off by knowing your risk. People over 60 to 65 with chronic medical conditions make up the disproportionate number of folks who are dying from coronavirus across the country. 
You need to understand and control your circumstances. There's higher risk in large gatherings when traveling and in communities such as Seattle and New York, where we know there is widespread uh, of, of uh, community spread of coronavirus. And then number three, get the facts to protect yourself. The two best places to get up-to-date facts on coronavirus are coronavirus.gov. We update that site regularly with recommendations in your State Department of Health website so you can understand what's going on locally. As Senator Harris stated, in the midst of community mitigation efforts, I also want to ask that people make attempts to connect more deeply and more often, even while they're physically apart. It's easier to do this than ever before with FaceTime and Skype or even a check-in text or a call. We know that connection can keep spirits up and give people strength to fight a national threat. And there are resources for managing stress and anxiety at cdc.gov or coronavirus.gov. And SAMHSA's got a distress hotline, a 1-800-985-5990. Uh, as an example, on the CDC uh, coronavirus website, it, it states that during a COVID-19 outbreak in your community, you can establish a buddy system to ensure vulnerable and hard-to-reach community members stay connected to COVID-19-related news and services and just feel like someone out there still cares about them. I want to finish by saying thanks for your interest and thanks for your support of this response. Again, I promise you, I promise you I'm in there fighting for, for uh, your priorities, fighting for people who are disadvantaged, fighting for people who are just like uh, my, me and my family are and we're growing up. It's going to be a tough several weeks ahead and things will get worse before they get better, but we need to lean into it now so that we see the positive effects three to four weeks down the line. If we work together, we support our neighbors and each other, we will get through this. Again, thanks to the NAACP for having me on. Oh, wow. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Adams. That's fabulous. We know your time is short, and there were a couple questions. So if we could just take a pause, we'll take a couple questions quick for you. Um, so uh, we're going to go to Ryan, who's in Denver, Colorado. Ryan had a question about the testing. So Ryan, you're on live with our Surgeon General of the United States. Please go ahead with your question. Okay. Um, you mentioned the testing and that you're testing the, the frontline people and you're testing the people in higher risk groups. Um, my question is, you know, they, they say that some people carry the virus without showing any symptoms that they're asymptomatic. So these people are out in public and they don't know that they're sick. So when will we start testing everyone so that we can make sure that these people are not out in public? That is a great question. And very quickly on testing, it's important to understand that our healthcare system and the CDC was never designed to have a government-led testing of hundreds of millions of people. The CDC was designed to respond to localized disasters. Initially, we offered testing through the CDC. Um, that capacity became overwhelmed. We then uh, reached out to state and local labs. So we have over 83 state and local labs that can do testing. But again, they were not designed to provide testing to everyone. It was always going to be uh, a need to rely on the commercial industry the private industry and what happened today and what we announced at the press conference is that uh we won uh, on friday there was a high throughput test that was um uh, given approval by the fda that will allow um thousands more tests to be able to be done but this isn't going to go from zero to 100 100 miles per hour overnight 
So we're going to do a staged phase in of this increased testing availability, uh, focusing on those who are at highest risk because they are most likely to die. And then we hope to get to a point uh, over the next week to two weeks where we will be more like South Korea's model and people can come in and get testing. But this is the important point for folks. If you have a cough, if you have a fever, um, you shouldn't be going out around other people regardless because you probably have an infectious respiratory disease, whether it's the flu or COVID or something else, and you still could be exposing other people to illness. Important for people to know that for young adults and children, you actually are more likely to die if you get the flu than you are from COVID-19. Uh, very important for people to, uh, to understand that. We've had over 20,000 flu deaths in our country this year. So while we want to get testing for folks, we want everyone to understand that if you wash your hands, if you stay away when you're sick, or if you stay away from people who are sick, you're going to protect yourself from COVID. You're going to protect yourself from flu. All right. Thank you. Uh, why don't we take one more uh, and then we'll move on to the congresswoman. So um, if we could, uh, please, Dr. Adams, we're going to go now to um, uh, Jacques from Boston. Uh, it looks like uh, Jacques is a doctor himself. So uh, Jacques from Boston, you're on live with our Surgeon General. Please go ahead with your question. Thank you very much. Uh, my question uh, was basically uh, related to screening high-risk people and screening the healthcare professionals along with the high-risk groups, uh, but General Adams answered that, that question, that uh, that they are looking to uh, to screen the frontline people who are in contact with multiple patients over the course of a day and, and many, many over the course of a week, and if one of the frontline people is infected and doesn't know it, uh, that could be problematic, so I think that that question got answered. And I, and I have to say, uh, you know, in, in, in closing that, it is proud to see our certain children general will step up to the plate and deal with these issues head on. So congratulations to General Adams. Thank you very much. And what I would say is there will be testing available really through four different lanes. There will be testing available through the CDC, as there always has been. There will be testing available through state and local labs. And they will really now be able to more specifically respond to uh, to hot pockets, uh, to areas where we, we're seeing increased um, cases in your communities. Uh, we will be setting up pods in uh, what the CDC has identified high-risk areas where we will have federal workers um, who go out and actually provide community-based testing. In some cases, it'll be drive-through. In some cases, it'll be walk-through over the next week. So important for you all to know that. But the big thing is we're, we're going to have more hospitals, more labs uh, providing testing at the hospital level and the community level. So I really do believe, and Tony Fauci said this earlier, that we we are at a, a, a turning point in regards to testing. <laughs> testing will be available. Uh, you'll see it in your communities. My aunt just texted me from Cumberland, Maryland, uh, that said and said now they have tents out offering testing, and that's that's actually pretty out there. And I know in the rural community where I grew up, they were offering critical access hospital. Oh, wow. All right, Dr. Adams, we know you're very busy. It sounds like you're doing more than great work, and we are all deeply grateful. So thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you. Okay, um, you're welcome. So uh, again, uh, if you have a question for any of our remaining panelists or in general, please remember you can press star three. It's like raising your hand doesn't interrupt us, but it lets us know the topic so we can get to as many folks as we can. Um, here uh, as we move on. And so now it's my great honor to introduce um, the Honorable U.S. Congresswoman Robin Kelly. Uh, Congresswoman Kelly, are you uh, on the line? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? 
Uh, the, we can. The floor is yours. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, President Johnson, and thank the NAACP and everyone who took the time to call in, because as you know, this is so very important. I associate myself with what uh, my colleague, uh, Senator Harris, said and what the Surgeon General has already said. I want to take the time to drill down a little bit on the two bills that we did pass. The first bill, we passed $8.3 billion for uh, coronavirus preparedness and response. It's a supplemental approach, which the President has already signed into law. Regarding the $8 billion, $100 million is directed to community health centers for underserved groups from the Office of the Secretary at HHS, and $950 million for state and local public health response that's dispersed via the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and half of that must be allocated within 30 days, and then $300 million to buy vaccines and treatment. And then um, early, early Saturday morning, we passed the second bill, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which includes free testing for the virus. We secured funding for all individuals, including the uninsured. And for families, we're helping give a bridge over troubled waters in terms of economic security. We did this by providing paid leave with two weeks of paid sick leave and up to three months of paid family and medical leave. We've also secured enhanced unemployment insurance, a step that will extend protection to furloughed workers. And we also know that in many in the African-American community are food insecure, which was a really big concern, especially with so many of the schools now closing. And today, the New York uh, City schools closed. So this bill strengthens uh, nutrition security initiatives, including SNAP, student meals, senior nutrition, and food stamps because we have to make sure that families have food to eat. Now, in my area, my state rep, his office is actually one of the areas where families um, can pick up food. I'm in the Chicagoland area, so people will have to check to see uh, where families can go. And then lastly, we increase federal funds for Medicaid to support local, state, and the territories and health systems so they have the resources they need to combat the pandemic. Now, the other thing I'm telling people that we're our best weapon that, uh, as was said, we have to follow, sounds simple, but we have to follow, you know, washing our hands, not touching our face, not going out if you're sick, if you think you are sick, calling your provider, not just going to the office or to the emergency room where there are already uh, sick people. And the other thing is really talking to our family, friends, and young people, like, teenagers and people in college that sometimes think they're invincible uh, because there have been reports like this is spring break and it just looks like uh, business as usual. And as was said, these very people can come back and um, inspect uh, older people. So um, this is what we're doing now. Hopefully, as the senator said, that Mitch McConnell is going to bring this bill up in the Senate and the president will sign it. So yes, we do need calls into the Senate to get this bill done next week when they go back. Thank you. All right, thank you so much, Congresswoman Kelly. So now again, uh, moving along, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Nicolette Lussant. Uh, Dr. Lussant, uh, uh, the floor is yours. 
Good evening, and thank you so much for having me. I just want to thank you, President Johnson, and the organizers for allowing me to join this call. Uh, most importantly, I want to lift up the fact that the NAACP has been focused on not just the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, but you have consistently focused on matters of emergency preparedness and the risk that disasters and disease outbreaks pose, especially in the most vulnerable, for the long haul. And I certainly appreciate your efforts. I'm honored to join on behalf of Healthcare Ready. Um, I serve as the executive director of a national nonprofit organization that was set up after Hurricane Katrina to focus on issues of health preparedness and response. Um, our role is to really make sure that we're building capacity between disasters and in times of crisis, facilitating solutions that help the most vulnerable meet their medical needs in, in times of disasters and disease outbreaks. Um, with COVID-19, what we are seeing is an unprecedented pandemic, but it is one that we have tested for, we have trained for, um, and so we are using, um, to the best of our abilities, um, the training and the skill sets that we have learned over the years to help us respond. Um, we do expect it to overwhelm parts of our healthcare system it already has. And as a result, we have to act quickly and decisively to make sure that we are protecting our communities and especially the most vulnerable. For our team, we're really focused on two populations. Um, we, we bracket them by, um, first, the medically fragile, those individuals who may face more severe illness as a result of the infection or may have challenges maintaining their chronic illness because of other challenges related to the pandemic response. But then there's also the socially vulnerable populations who may not at any point be infected with the coronavirus, but may be challenged by the downstream impact from the public health response. We talked earlier about the school closures and the impact to the um, small businesses and other economic impacts. So we're thinking about both of these populations. But I just want to make three main points tonight. The first is that we really have to approach this from a community preparedness and response standpoint and not an individual preparedness standpoint. The only way we're going to get through this is together. That also means that we really have to think creatively about how we work together and engage our communities. A lot of the community building and capacity building work that we routinely do is face-to-face. -face. Even during disasters, a lot of the support that we provide is one-on-one. -on -one. And so a lot of our measures that we would normally, the methods that we would normally use, aren't things that we can do without creating additional risk. So we have to be creative. We have to think outside of our traditional methods of building community, recognizing that that could curb the outbreak, and lean into technology and, and sometimes old-school phone calls and other things that allow for us to still be effective but be nimble. Secondly, we have to think through what emergency managers call cascading impacts really understanding what the downstream impacts of the pandemic are so that we can not after and when we're in recovery, but during this response, make sure that we are working to address the needs of those who need us most. I've seen a lot of commentary over the last few days and, and really been heartened by a lot of the solutions as it relates to um, mail order or delivery for prescription meds, or thinking about how to meet the needs of, of students who would normally rely on the meals that they would get at school, or ways to care for individuals with functional and access needs. We have to remain focused on all of that right now. And then finally, I would say my last point is that this really is a, a long haul. This is a sustained event. So it's, we have to be prepared to really address this as a community because in order to stem the outbreak or flatten the curve, it's going to radically change lifestyles. 
But as it relates to medical fragility, it's really important to understand that there are some equity issues at play here. Um, what we know is that about 46% of the population relies on prescription drugs and has used prescription drugs in the last 30 days. But we also know that 85% of people of color report having to rely on one or more prescription drugs in the last 30 days. So again, even if they're not impacted by the particular infection, the COVID-19 infection, they are going to have medical needs. But we also know that 30% of people of color on medication say that they are not able to last for more than one day without their medications before facing a personal medical crisis. So for us, this idea of making sure that healthcare is accessible for everyone during this crisis is incredibly important. And then finally, I would just say, as we're thinking through um, how we are going to respond, we have to make sure that we are taking the taking the right decisions, making the right steps in order to protect public health, but also understanding that there are going to be serious consequences, especially for the most vulnerable, and that is going to leave community to fill the gap, which can be a difficult burden. We really see a lot of our disaster organizations stand up to really fill that gap and support communities, but we have to understand that there are going to be populations that will continue to depend on health care, and it's not just about hospitals. They're thinking about the service services that individuals rely on day in and day out. So we are focused on pharmacies and dialysis centers and community health centers and clinics and all of the other components of the system. Because if you think about, for example, the individual with end-stage renal disease, they're going to be dependent on routine visits for dialysis treatment. So we can't just keep everyone out of the system. We have to make sure that the individuals who need it continue to have access to it and can do that safely without posing additional risks to themselves. So ultimately, we are continuing this fight. We have a long way to go. Um, our focus is making sure that we are able to protect these populations and ultimately hoping that their existing health challenges would not be compounded by this event. I thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. Um, so again, if you have questions, press star three on your phone to get in the queue and uh, we'll get to you here after our last two panelists. Um, or these immediate panelists. So it's my pleasure now to introduce Lejeune Montgomery Tebron. She is the president and CEO of our very good friend and partner, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Um, and she's been so wonderful with us here at the NAACP, but is really uh, critical in the role as we fight to serve uh, underserved populations, particularly at this crisis time. So uh, Lejeune, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, and I also want to thank President uh, Johnson uh, for having this call. The NAACP is definitely an organization that touches community, and I would like to focus my comments on exactly that, community, and how, while this is a global issue, it is time for all of us to come together, particularly in our communities. Uh, there are over 14,000 of us here today, and that gives me hope for what we can do in community. Uh, I want to give you just uh, some background on what's happening in vulnerable communities. When we have pandemics like this, vulnerable communities uh, are stretched even further. And it is the our uh, interest at the W.K. Kellogg Foundation zeroes in on what's happening in those most vulnerable communities. And as I have spoken to uh, my leaders in my communities, what I am hearing is there are four major issues, and we've talked about it today, 
But I just want to break those down a little bit. The issue of food insecurity, the issue of transportation, the issue of utilities, and I include uh, the digital divide in that, as well as the issue of work and child care. Uh, these are exacerbated in very vulnerable communities, uh, and they are really struggling right now. What a foundation can do in a time like this is, is seek to fill gaps. And I do want to thank the leadership of Robin Kelly and the House to bring forward the legislation and the bill that has just been passed. Uh, but when you think about vulnerable communities, that will not be enough. Uh, people are struggling. A third of people in rural communities don't even have Internet access. So the work from home option isn't available to them. So while we take certain uh, approaches for granted, there are many people in, in this nation that uh, have no, very, very little options. Uh, so what we do at the Kellogg Foundation, as we think about those gaps, is how can we be a better partner and address these gaps? What we're doing as funders is we're saying that our funding has to be more flexible. Some of you may be grantees on the line. What we are thinking about is how we can take resources that you may already have and deploy those more directly in your community for the needs of your community. Unfortunately, the nonprofit infrastructure is being weakened as we have these issues. Uh, many nonprofits are canceling fundraisers, are canceling events that they use as revenue generators. And so we're looking at not only vulnerable communities and uh, a challenged state, but the infrastructure breaking down as well. So as foundations, we are thinking about how we can be more flexible, redeploy funding. We're also coming together as funders and thinking about how we can build collaborative rapid response funds across the nation using intermediaries like the United Ways and Salvation Armies and other local organizations that have already built trust in communities where we can provide resources to help people who can't pay their water bills because their uh, income has, uh, has been affected by lack of hours working. Um, and then finally, what I'd like to say is uh, there were many other issues that we were dealing with in philanthropy that now will be challenged. You heard earlier the issue of Census 2020. Census 2020 is extremely important to make sure that those communities that are typically undercounted uh, are counted in this 2020 process because we don't get another opportunity for a decade. Uh, and while we had strategies and approaches to deal with this, those strategies are breaking down uh, by the day. Uh, if there is no face-to-face -face contact, uh, there is uh, many of the approaches for Census 2020 have to be redesigned in more creative spaces. But as I said, many people are not in the digital space that are also undercounted. So one of the things that we're going to have to do in all of our communities is think about ways to reach people, to build trust, uh, either telephone or other methods of communication, uh, advertising, et cetera, because those who are already vulnerable and mistrusting of, of government uh, in times like this will find it even harder to step forward. And those are the exact people we need to reach because we're talking billions of dollars of resources to communities uh, 
by the fact that people are counted in this census 2020 process. So I just want to close by saying, you know, this is a community issue. And while we don't know what's happening globally, we can all step up and, and do something in our own communities. And right now, people need us. The homeless need us. Uh, those people who uh, are losing wages by the day, the people who, uh, and particularly the young people, uh, what I understand is that schools are closing. These young people uh, need access to quality education. And that hasn't been tested and tried in many of our communities. Many of our public school systems do not have the technology technology to provide academic courses online, et cetera. So when you think about a summer slide when children lose their academic progress, think about what could happen during this pandemic. And so we need to really come together and think about how we can educate our young people and wrap our arms around them during this time. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Lejeune. Very uh, timely and important comments. And so now it's my pleasure to move things along to Dr. Rich Besser, who's the CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the former head of the CDC. Dr. Besser, uh, the floor is yours. Thanks very much. Um, I, I want to start and, and thank President Johnson for pulling this together and, and thank you and the NAACP for inviting me to join. You know, we've been hearing such terrific information that people can use to help keep themselves and their, and their families safe. Um, you know, my heart goes out to those people who, who are ill, uh, people whose lives have been disrupted and, and are worried, and people who've lost their jobs, and whose kids can't go to school. Um, we're going to get through this, um, but it's going to be very challenging. I, I worked at the, the CDC for 13 years. Uh, I trained as a disease detective, and uh, my job was to help control outbreaks. And I led the agency during the start of the H1N1 flu pandemic in 2009. And I, I know the toll that this can take. You know, our goal as a nation has to be to work to ensure that everyone has that opportunity to take the steps to reduce the risk to themselves, to their families, and, and their communities. And we know that's not the case in America uh, today. It clearly hasn't been the case during public health crises in the, in the past. Um, these emergencies have always taken a harder toll on communities of color than other communities, and, and 